What I was interested in is, was building the system necessary. If you think about trauma, for example, uh, when you get injured in North America, you call 911 and then the ambulance is dispatched, you picked up to go to the hospital and get treated by trained people. That doesn't happen in most of the world. There's no 911. There's no ambulance. There's no um, field triage guide to tell you where to bring that patient. There's no emergency department at the hospital that's closest to them, if there's even a hospital. And there may be no physicians there. So that system that we have, the trauma system, is what allows patients to survive serious injury. Not so much that I'm a skilled trauma surgeon or I'm not a skilled trauma, whatever. It's not so much in one individual's hand, and it's not so much in the technology available. It's more in how it's all organized and run and monitored. So that system is really what interested me around the globe. When your friendly neighborhood hospital spots that new piece of health tech, it just pops that wallet out and buys it, right? That's wrong. Hi. Welcome back to How It's Med, the podcast where we chat with people who are shaping the future of health tech and med tech. Last time, we chatted with Dr. Harvey Hawes and learned about how he came to become a trauma surgeon and then the co-founder of LHS Labs. This time, we learned more about what Learning Health System Labs is overall and how it provides, to quote, big solutions for complex healthcare problems. Let's get started. That's a fascinating point, but... I mean, I can't help but think that to some degree there is some contradiction there because when like usually with the general media's portrayal of, I guess, uh, work in uh, providing education to or resources to areas with underdeveloped health resources, it's done by charities. But you're mentioning all of this in the framework of markets and companies which is something that I haven't necessarily heard of. So how do you, I guess, resolve, I guess, maybe it's just in my head, this conflict? So I think the, you know, a lot of this came, a lot of this thinking now came after that event uh, and working with the NGOs that I worked with, um, which are all entirely health systems NGOs. Mm -hmm. I never really did mission surgical work. I never flew in, operated and left. That was not something I was interested in. What I was interested in is, was building the system necessary. If you think about trauma, for example, uh, when you get injured in North America, you call 911 and then the ambulance is dispatched, you picked up to go to the hospital, you get treated by trained people. That doesn't happen in most of the world. There's no 911. There's no ambulance. There's no, um, field triage guide to tell you where to bring that patient. There's no emergency department at the hospital that's closest to them if there's even a hospital and there may be no physicians there. So that system that we have, the trauma system is what allows patients to survive serious injury. Not so much that I'm a skilled trauma surgeon or I'm not a skilled trauma, whatever. It's not so much in one individual's hand and it's not so much in the technology available. It's more in how it's all organized and run and monitored. So that system is really what interested me around the globe. Charities and donations uh, have their role, just like humanitarian aid, which is sort of intervening in times of crisis, like MSF and Red Cross do work very well. Um, but that doesn't always have the aim of building the system when we leave. Uh, you know, if you, if you were to run a healthcare system, even in North America, based on donation alone, you wouldn't have a very good healthcare system because you'd be dependent on the next donation cycle before you could do anything new and, and donors, they change, they lose their money, they retire, they, they, you know, they're, 
everything changes. And so you don't have a constant source of, of, you know, technology or equipment or people, you can't hire people consistently. And yet we think that, that we're helping low and middle income countries and venture resource countries by giving them stuff. But that doesn't really help. If you've ever been to a low or under-resourced hospital uh, and you go out to the back of it, you'll see a graveyard of donated equipment that is broken down because the system isn't in place for service contracts or, or those sorts of things. Or they don't know how to use them because there's, they haven't been, there's no education system there or no referral system to get the patients to them or the fact that uh, the operating room needs a lot of equipment and 99% of it is broken, but that one shiny donated piece of equipment is sitting there or not ready to be used, but it can't be used because everything else is broken. So I'm not a believer that donation by itself works. I tend to think, imagine I've been hired in that hospital and I'm part of the community and I live there. And what would I, based on what I'm seeing, what would I need to to provide a standard of care to that population. You know, my responsibility is to the community I work in here, but it's also my responsibility when I go overseas to that community that lives there. And um, shiny equipment doesn't get them very far, but building that system behind it and training enough people. And, you know, many or some countries have one surgeon per country or one surgeon per few million people, or even more than that. Um, and that surgeon may not be there the whole time. And so how, how can you provide surgical care, even if you had the best, you know, donated hospital in the world and nobody in it to do anything and nobody educated and no system of education, then that's not going to go very far. So yeah, I, I have a very biased view from my NGO work, my systems NGO work that informs my technology development work. I never make a technology thinking that it's going to be the solution. Uh, I make a technology thinking of how it's going to fit into a system of care. And that's I think, quite important. I think that's a really, I guess, impactful and interesting way of thinking about the sustainability of systems overall. But I guess to pivot back to your story in terms of how you got to where you are today, between your work, uh, in the South Pacific and now, um, something called the COVID-19 pandemic happened and mm -hmm. you've done interesting work during that period of time. Uh, could you let us know what exactly, I guess, happened, um, and how you were involved with the whole ventilator space, uh, early in the pandemic when there was that big, I guess, huzzah about, about that equipment? Yeah. So I mean, maybe. Most of the population wouldn't have um, known it, but there, when COVID hit, um, one of the early panic events, though many of them, was that countries were realizing that their stockpiles of medical equipment and weren't up to snuff. They were out of maintenance cycles. They didn't work. They didn't have as many as they thought they did. The contracts that they thought existed didn't exist. The system hadn't been stressed or tested, and now it was being stressed and tested and there was a panic that we wouldn't have enough ventilators, for example, that was one of the areas. Now I had a company that was working on a very low cost ventilator for low middle income countries. And we sort of shelved it because there wasn't a lot of interest to get a ventilator market at that point. Uh, suddenly there was, so 
spent a lot of time, um, you know, designing, working with, partnering with, trying to find ways to get a ventilator made. And at the beginning, thought that was the solution. But given what I had just talked about, how it's more the system than the technology that's the solution, I started to get really concerned. So I saw uh, an incredible upswell of crowdsourced engineering expertise, which was really exciting to see and, and, and participated in, in, I don't know how many, you know, hundreds of hours of discord channels and interviews and, and, you know, this is how ventilator works and this is how we use them. And a lot of really keen, interested people from tinkerers to makers, to professional engineers, to NASA's engineers, to whoever, um, really wanted to, to help. At the same time, there was an incredible outpouring of money from, especially around Silicon Valley. Um, and, um, they were looking for people to guide them through some of the decisions they were making about who to fund and why they should get into this. <laughs> and I saw a really large amount of bad ideas getting out there in the guise of, we're just going to open source it, put it on GitHub and people can then take it and do what they want with it. And they can put their grandma on this ventilator, call it a ventilator because it, and I was really nervous as a clinician, uh, you know, I did not want to be a part of the discussions all of a sudden, because I didn't want to have my name attached to a device that could kill somebody. Um, and I had actually talked to a few military surgeons at the time who, um, had some bad, uh, bad episodes with ventilators that were killing soldiers in the field. Uh, and how long it took them to sort of identify that and how dangerous that was. Um, and so really started to put together a team of, um, medical device creators, regulators, lawyers, clinicians, ethicists, health economists, you know, everybody, I started having these conversations with everybody about we're at a real risk here of getting this wrong. If, if we don't rein in this energy and talk about safety and ethics and quality and these sorts of things, um, more patients could potentially die from these new ventilators than from COVID. And so that, that formed into a white paper that we wrote. It's essentially a guidance document for regulators, businesses, medical device industry, purchasers, clinicians, all of these people that were having questions about ventilators. We wanted to, to write a document that really outlined a few practical steps that we could do. So yes, we were short ventilators, but the solution isn't to make bad ventilators or dangerous ventilation or have people make them in the garages. That's not the solution to the problem. The solution to the problem is to make more of the ventilators we have. And, and so to upregulate or upscale our capacity to make existing safe, well-trusted ventilators, that's the number one thing that needed to be done. The second thing is if we didn't, if they didn't have the companies have the manufacturing ability to keep up with demand, then to bring in other related fields, manufacturing abilities to do that. That's what, where the automotive industry and aerospace industry started to talk about making ventilators. They made, you know, highly regulated parts already. It wasn't unusual for them to make something like this and it could be done. Um, uh, then the idea of, um, if we had to make new ventilators, then it should be experienced people making ventilators of a certain kind that would allow the really expensive ventilators, the really complex ventilators to be used for the most complex patients. And then the cheaper, lower, um, 
lower capacity ventilators to be used for less complicated patients. So basically you could open up some of the best ventilators for the, the COVID patients that needed, whereas post-surgical patients, they don't need fancy ventilators. Um, so there's a lot of strategies that came out of this white paper, which actually attracted a lot of attention. It was kind of a relief when, uh, Health Canada and people from FDA and Medtronic and these big players in the field started, um, asking questions and, and looking for some guidance on what to do next. You know, Medtronic just before, just as we were writing this open sourced open source, one of their old ventilators basically opened up all the files and said the, the design files and manufacturing files and said, here, if you know how to do it, you can build this. And when we absolve ourselves of any risk or liability from it, and it was an old ventilator that they made. And I had been working with a lot of major manufacturers to try and get that ventilator made. And we quickly realized that it was impossible to make the old Medtronic ventilator because we didn't have the old Medtronic manufacturing lines. And to redesign the ventilator to modern manufacturing lines was the same as designing a brand new ventilator. And so while it was a great uh, PR move by Medtronic, uh, and probably with the right intention in mind, uh, it quickly became clear that nobody in the world could make this thing at any scale better than Medtronic and Medtronic should just do it, uh, which is what ended up what happened. So, um, it was, it was a lot of eye opening, a lot of, you know, really deep forays into regulatory, into national purchasing patterns, into health economics, into safety and equality. And, um, it was, a, you know, I was a big learning experience for me, but also my chance to integrate health systems development with NGOs and problem solving and technology. And I think that's, that was really exciting for me. And that's actually sparked a lot of new things, which is where this new LHS labs is sort of started from. Yeah. It's almost like, uh, LHS stands for, uh, learning health systems that learn from previous, uh, previous yeah. issues or mistakes. So I guess, tell us more about LHS because like we've chatted about it already, but it's such a fascinating topic that I think it'd be good to do like a brief overview and then for us to dive a little to the problems that you're trying to solve with it. I'm sure. So, uh, so I had started a, a number of companies, but, uh, they're mostly focused on smaller parts of technology development and you know, some that specialize in 3D printing or head manufacturing and things. But what I was getting a lot of questions around was, um, you know, there's, there's, there's problems in healthcare that are simple to solve. They're probably rarer than we think. And there's problems in healthcare that are incredibly complicated and nobody can take them on. Health authorities, meaning uh, institutions that provide healthcare in large populations, like Canada, that would be provincial governments or health authorities in there. And the U.S. is different. Around the world is different. But large health authorities have all tried to take on the role of solving big problems within their institutions. But they're, they fail most, most of the time. Uh, and they fail uh, a lot of the time because they're not the right people that, that should be solving these problems. Health authorities should be providing healthcare to a population. They should be putting calls out to problem solvers to solve the upcoming problems that they see on the horizon and try and get ahead of it. But they shouldn't be spending all the money on engineers and uh, health economics and all this sort of stuff, specifically around solving problems when they are in fact the problem themselves in a lot of ways. So just by the, the nature of the, the industry, that they are the keepers of healthcare, uh, they may not know where the problems lie. They may not have the institutional wherewithal or machinery to 
figure out where the problems are, but they know problems exist. Um, LHS labs was created to tackle those biggest, most challenging healthcare problems. The more complicated, the more interdigitating or, or, you know, combined approach necessary, multidisciplinary thinking needed. That's where LHS lab sits most comfortably. Um, where a lot of people would want to break down the problem and reduce it into its smallest parts. That kind of approach doesn't work in healthcare, uh, because you change, you tweak one knob on the giant complex piece of machinery of healthcare and all the other values go out of whack uh, in ways you can't predict. Uh, it's too complicated, it's too chaotic, it's too intertwined. Uh, and it's a mix of historical sort of dogma, uh, couched in this new sort of quality initiative that's going on. And those two things don't sit well together. Um, and the people making the decisions may lean towards the old dogma and certainly the new younger hires that are trying to change things from within are more on the evidence-based side of it, but it's still a culture clash and, uh, LHS has all of the people that have done this before in some capacity in healthcare, whether it be clinicians, engineers, regulatory people, lawyers, health economics, uh, health entrepreneurs, um, health technologists and government purchase, like everybody that's involved in healthcare sits in LHS lab. Um, we have the ability, and I think it's a skill that is probably the most important of assessing a problem in its true state. You know, people may come to you with a problem, but they may not understand themselves what the problem is. And then if you're going to solve a problem, you really have to understand the problem more than what's being told. You really have to go and dig around and talk to people on the, you know, on the front lines or, or look at the books and look at the economics of it, or talk to the patients. I mean, if you're not talking to patients in healthcare, then you're missing both. And, um, we do that. And we, I think we do a better job of understanding problems than many groups. And it's only when you understand it, that you, can you design the solution and the solution may not be technological at all. It may be simply, um, you know, corporatizing a service within a public healthcare system that allows more revenue to join or, or something like that. So that's what LHS does where we, we live in that space of uncertainty and complexity. That, that seems like an uncomfortable place to live, but to, to provide a bit more context and comparison for some of our listeners who might not necessarily know about the procurement process as it is for Canadian healthcare authorities. Um, and as it will be, um, if, uh, LHS is able to successfully, um, I guess, support healthcare authorities, uh, could you first lay out what procurement looks like now and what LHS is trying to do in comparison? Sure. So, um, procurement happens in Canada at large scale because health authorities are large entities. And so when, when a procurement office purchases something, they're doing it with a number of things in mind, cost being one of them, uh, you know, universality of the device so that they can have it across all of their hospitals, institutions, uh, safety, um, you know, bundled approaches. So you have multiple things that you can purchase together. Um, and they're, they're quite sophisticated in the way they think about it. Uh, and they, they hold a large amount of purchasing power. So they're good at, at products that have been around for a long time because they, they tested them, they're stable, they know that, but we're now in an era of healthcare where new products are needed rapidly to do new things. Uh, the pace of technological development is increasing. So new generations of devices are coming all the time. Whereas it used to be you buy a product for 10 years and you'd be fairly sure that the next purchase from it would be similar. 
But nowadays devices are changing, you know, yearly cycle and that, especially in, in fields like surgery, that impacts patient outcomes. You know, if you think about the revolution of laparoscopic equi equipment versus open surgery, which is the old way of doing it, almost overnight, the entire field of surgery changed and patient outcomes changed. That's happening now almost on an annual basis. Uh, you think about mRNA vaccines, for example. So, so health authorities and purchasing offices specifically aren't usually up to speed on how to assess new technologies. So HTAs, health technology assessment pathways, they exist within large purchasing groups, but they're not really all that robust because they haven't had to do it very much. So an example is a health authority was looking at a UV robot, autonomous robot to go into a COVID infected room and clean it autonomously rather than placing people in that risky position. <laughs> and that technology is brand new since COVID. No one really, you know, they had been doing some UV cleaning before, but the idea of having this autonomous robot all moved everybody. Lots of companies are trying to do this. As a health authority, how do you know which products on the market by certain vendors? And a lot of these vendors are brand new. They've never had a product before because they're startups. Uh, how do you know and how do you assess that technology? And so, for example, one health authority I know, I put the call out for them and they had more applications and products in front of them that they knew what to do with and no way to figure out if they were good enough in the amount of time necessary to make the decision. And they made some purchases based on what they thought were right. And, and none of the purchases, uh, worked out. None of those robots did what they said they could do or met their needs. And so the, the, the concept of a, of a cleaning robot has just died because now what do they do? They just purchase more and waste more money and then go through the cycle again. So LHS labs and a lot of other firms too, but LHS labs does have the ability to, to vet these ideas and understand exactly the requirements that the health authority may have. And it may be not something that the health authority themselves know yet. They may have an idea of how they would use it, but they don't really, haven't really thought much about how that fits in their systems. LHS could help them, you know, really modify or, or clarify their design input requirements. And then LHS labs could go out and find vendors that meet those uh, requirements. It may be that there's a hundred potentials and we can whittle it down to two or three. And maybe that zero people do that. Zero companies meet the needs of this health authority, in which case we can help either startups or spin our own companies because we have technology development people to meet those needs of a large purchaser. I think if you're developing, one thing I could say to new health technology developers out there, uh, whether it be makers or industry or startups or whatever, if you don't have a person willing, so health technologies are used by different people. They're used by the user, which is typically a clinician. They're in some ways used by the patient, meaning the device is being used on the patient. <laughs> but also importantly is someone actually has to pay you and buy it. Uh, so there's three people really involved in, in the life cycle of a health technology. And if you don't have a good understanding of all three of those people, your technology isn't going to go anywhere. You could have the best device that everybody wants to use and patients feel is the greatest, but if purchasers don't understand it, they're not buying it and vice versa. Purchasers may under not understand how it's used at all, but like the price point and buy it. But clinicians who use it say that's off. That's quite common. Or patients may say, you know, what the hell is this thing? Why am I doing this? Uh, and not understand why it, or how it's used. So. 
as a health technology creator, I would recommend don't even getting started unless someone has told you they would pay money for that. Meaning it solves a problem that's in front of them. That's key. If it doesn't solve a problem that's in front of somebody, then you're trying to push a new device into a market where there's millions of devices out there. So you want to be pulled into a market by someone that says, I have this problem. I will pay money for a good solution. That's step one. Step two is make the solution, uh, and understand the people that are using it and understand the people that's being used on very well and the system that it's going into. And then a lot of the design needs to be not around the technology itself and all the requirements necessary to get through regulatory, but a large amount of it needs to be on, is it culturally a good fit for where it's going to be used? For example, the new ventilators that were coming out of the COVID era, they were big steel boxes and they didn't look like a ventilator. And as a clinician who may put a patient on a ventilator in the middle of a pandemic, I would not reach for this new device of looks like it's an industrial beer fridge or something. Like, I'm not going to put a patient on that because I don't trust that it works and I don't have the time to learn how to use it. And the nurses or the respiratory therapists don't know how to turn it on. And when it turns on, it doesn't do all the things that normal medical device does. It, it has a loading screen written in Unix and they don't understand that. So, um, so spending a lot of time around product design and how it's, how it's used human factors design and interface design. It's really, really key. It may not be the sexiest thing, or it may not be why you got interested in making a device at all, but if nobody wants to use it on a patient, then nobody's going to use it. And so then even if the purchaser, you've, you managed to get through the purchaser door, but now the clinicians don't want to use it. Well, that device is going to die. And then the third thing is understand how it's used on a patient and what that means. And so if you can do those things. That requires you to know business or have people that can do business. That means sales and, and sustainability and path to market. Means you have to have a clinician or several clinicians is better uh, around the world in different contexts because the context changed how technologies are used. And it means you have to spend a lot of time with patients. And if you haven't done those things, but you have the greatest device in the world, it's not going anywhere. Um, you have to really check those boxes before you even get started. I think there's, there's two points that kind of stem out of what you just said. Number one is that what you're building with LHS is extremely multidisciplinary. And that flies in the face of running a lean startup with trying to get viewpoints where necessary, but not expanding the team too much so that you don't have to pay everybody because you can't. Just frankly, as a startup, your, your resource limitation is money. So with what you're building with LHS, doesn't that threaten to flip the model of how healthcare innovation is done? And how will the other systemic factors of how healthcare innovation is done interact with this new model if it is put into place? Yeah, so um, it flips a few things on its head. Um, but I think in, if you were to talk to really intelligent health technology investors, for example, which is really, that's another factor that you, if you haven't addressed yet, if you don't know what an investor's thinking, then you're probably not going to get very far. You need to have somebody in your team that knows that. Um, and I'm learning that. But, um, and investors are changing. They're becoming much more savvy. Um, there was, you know, in covid when every dot-comer wanted to put money into the save the world from COVID device, 
they're dumping money in just to support some of these horrible devices. I was the unsafe devices I was talking about before. Uh, and even some of the industrial grants that were coming out were, were targeting really bad devices, but because the technology looks so good, they liked it. Um, so you have to have this new sort of generation of, of investor, these so some of them are called impact investors, where they're, you know, they're not just looking for returns they're looking for a positive impact and something that's important to them. Uh, that's important, but the investors themselves need to, if they're pivoting into healthcare investing, they need to understand that as well, because it's easy to get caught up in investing in the coolest new cutting edge technology that nobody else has. That's going to 10x. But it doesn't 10x because it doesn't take into account who the purchaser is, what the problem really is, who's using the device and, and who they're using it on. And so I, I don't think it flips things. I think it's a more comprehensive way to do device creation. When you get an investment for your company and your startup that's got this thing and you think in this way, then it, your comment are all, you have to hire all these experts to pay them. Well, that's mandatory in my books because if you don't have these people on giving their opinions, you're not likely to hit the mark. And so it becomes a non-negotiable fact in the investment discussion is that I can't do this without these people advising me. And so that's not a luxury to have. That's actually the way it needs to be done. And, and the turnaround is if, if the entire industry changed that, I think the success rate of new devices would be higher. I think there would be uh, a lot more collaboration between say, potentially competing startups that each one and grab a piece of the pie, but that they have overlapping expertise, they're more likely to succeed if they join forces. Uh, and so I think a lot of sort of that, you know, traditional business startup mentality where you figure out your competitive landscape and how you're different from them. I think also you should probably figure out where you're similar and where your ethics and ethos may align. And then rather than compete against them, maybe join them. Uh, and see what happens. And I think that's, that's part of that new paradigm shift as well. Okay. I'm aware that we're running close on time, but we've talked a lot about the Canadian landscape so far, and I'm not sure if you've delved into this, but how does what LHS labs do, um, generalize to other countries? I know that for example, the NHS, um, and other countries, uh, or other healthcare systems that to some degree have a uh, public focused, I guess, mandate, uh, may be generalizable, but what about the States? Like, does the model also yeah. apply there? I think the model applies anywhere. If you really understand the context of where you're designing for your solution will fit better into the system. So one of the NGOs I'm working with is working on a medical device manufacturing space based in Nairobi. Uh, and part of it will be an academy to teach new innovators how to understand problems locally. Now they understand problems. I say they, but people in a context understand problems quite well. If you think about, you know, the problem in traffic where you live, you understand that way better than an external consultant ever will because you drive it every day. It's the same thing in, in healthcare. People that are working in a context and providing healthcare to people, they're just as passionate about healthcare as everybody else. And they want the same outcomes and they want the same level of care, the same standard of care. They don't want hand-me-downs and secondhand equipment that's broken. They don't want the same equipment that people are using around the world. We can design for that. That could be a design input and, and the cost can be uh, modified and the, the functionality can be modified to meet those needs. You know, a lot of the bells and whistles you see on the highest end equipment sold in America 
doesn't need to be there. It's feature creep. It's, it's marketing. It's, it's not necessarily necessary or have proven outcomes for what you need to do. So just by changing your design requirements, you could, and understanding the problem and the need for those design requirements, you can put any device in any market and I think do well, uh, your margins may be smaller, but the numbers that you're going to sell may be higher. And especially if you start thinking about a circular economy and regional manufacturing using new manufacturing methods, I think you can get to a reasonable business model anywhere in the world. That's fascinating. And with that, uh, we're going to close off. Before we close off, do you have any pluggables that you like to plug? Any links, uh, social media at all? Uh, just lhslabs.com. It's, it's the website we're doing. Come join forces. Send me an email. Uh, if you're a surgical trainee or a health, you know, medical student or anybody in healthcare that wants to join the innovation week, we're opening it up this year. So we're going to have multiple people, uh, come watch the, the output from that. These are the new startups that will get spun off. If you're an investor that wants to learn more about this, uh, you know, I'll be knocking on your door shortly and, uh, yeah, come join and, and change things. We're trying to build it Western Canada and Pacific Northwest first, but we're scaling as quick as we can. As you know, we're already starting to scale to Nairobi and other places. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of How It's Med. If you liked what you heard, the best way to support us is to go to your podcast platform, be it Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, whatever you like, and to give us a rating and a recommendation or a comment so that others can best find us. If you can't do that, then we'd really appreciate it if you could share your favorite episode with those that you care about and who you think would find our work interesting. Till next time.